You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because some of us were that kid who read the encyclopedia for fun, and it shows. Mm. <laughs> I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland. And this is episode 12, The Play's The Thing. So we are very excited today at World Building for Masochists because we have a guest star with us. Let's Yay! Cass Morris. Yay! Thank you so much for joining us, Cass. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast. I love world building. I am so excited to be able to talk to you guys. Yay! Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself, your work, uh, cool stuff like that? Absolutely. Uh, so I am Cass Morris, and I'm the author of From Unseen Fire, which is a historical fantasy novel set in an alternate ancient Rome. I gave the ancient Romans magic to see what they would do with it, and it was glorious and terrible things, as one might imagine. Uh, it's book one of the Oven Cycle. Book two has just been handed back to my editor, so I'm mid-revisions there. We don't have a firm pub date yet, not a public pub date yet, but it will be sooner than once it was it's in a less distant future than it used to be nice <laughs> that is that is the nature of linear time that is the, <laughs> well you know you never know when you might wander into a temporal anomaly or something but that's true that's true um elsewhere in my life i am an educator i'm a shakespeare scholar i have my undergraduate degree is in medieval and renaissance studies and my nice. master's degree is in shakespeare and I worked for the American Shakespeare Center in their education department for seven years. Wow, fabulous. Wow. Why I was invited for this episode. Yeah, you're kind of <laughs> the perfect person to, to be talking about the topic that we're ta uh, talking about today. Um, also, you and I need to like hang out sometime and talk about ancient Romans with magic because I am also kind of doing that thing. Not actively, but I'm doing some world building about the quote-unquote ancient Romans in uh, the fantasy world that I'm doing right now. Let's chat later, off air. Absolutely. Um, not, the, <laughs> not the subject of today's, uh, today's episode, because today, uh, to sort of put a spotlight on all of Cass's expertise, we're talking about uh, world building pop culture in your fantasy worlds. This is super exciting. Who wants to start? Before we dive into um, fun, exciting world building wonderfulness. Um, I, I think I just want to shout really quickly that Marsha Ryan and Maresca, um, in terms of our timeline of where we are, not when this is releasing, but you had a book come out like, last like real week. recently. Yeah, it came out last week. That yes. was so, people, which I've been screaming about here for a while now. Yes. And I was so excited to finally see it like in person, like real life, see, like a real book. It. it was wonderful. <laughs> With pages and a cover and words, all the words. all them stuff. <laughs> all that stuff. It's funny. I was just at World Fantasy Con, which was lovely, wonderful. You should all come. And at one point, some guy comes up to me. He's like, "Why are you keeping us waiting? When's the next one coming out?" I'm like, "It just came out on Tuesday." <laughs> I I also have that question, Marshall, but it's because I unfairly got to read this one a couple months ago. So yeah, I've already been waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. my next one, which is the Fenmare job, comes out in just in less than four months, which when I actually Shut up. Shut up. Right? We don't want to hear it. And Cass will probably get it early too, because she's cool like that. 
Um, oh, and now that I think about it, I do actually have a, a small piece of news as well. Yes, go buy uh, Marshall Ryan Mareska's book. Uh, but I, Alex Rowland, also have this other podcast uh, with these other podcast co-hosts. Um, they were here before you guys were, so, you know, don't get jealous. <laughs> uh, and one of them, uh, Jennifer Mace, is currently running a Kickstarter for Silk and Steel, which is an anthology of short stories about uh, fantasy queer women. Uh, so if you like sword lesbians and stabbing, consider uh, checking that out and giving them some of your money. That is all the fin thing I'm going to do. That is definitely relevant of my interest. So. Yes, I think it's. I think sword lesbians are relevant to um all of our interests all the time, always. Yeah, yeah. that could be a whole separate podcast. Just <laughs> this is true. Uh, so, so speaking of of highly entertaining and exciting yes. and ways that people would entertain themselves, let's let's talk pop culture. Let's talk entertainment. So how do people entertain themselves in real and fantasy worlds? Well, they like to use technology to do it. And basically, whatever kind of technology that people develop will eventually be used for how do we do something fun with it. For example, when people invented the airplane, it was only a matter of time until people are doing like trick stunts in airplanes <laughs> and and like airplane stunt shows and uh risking their lives doing death defying maneuvers and so forth um so every piece of of technology that we develop okay not every piece almost every piece is used somehow for showing us a good time whether that means uh pg rated or wink wink <laughs> That's a different episode. Alex. That's a different yeah, episode. Out of like every thing. episode, but that's <laughs> I just feel like it's important. So I feel like with Cass here, um, a lot of our chatting today is going to end up focusing on wordsy stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's probably worth noting that you know we have our wordsy kind of entertainment, literature, and theater. Um, we also have um, music, um, and more visual arts, um, painting, sculpture. Um, setting up some sort of um, complicated installation that people go and look at, and of course dance as well. So we have a lot of ways people people like to get together and try to have a good time. Talent may or may not be involved. Yeah, I sort of feel like each of those could be its own sub-episode, really. Absolutely. There's so much to get into. I was just reading an article today about, you know, like how people experience art at the Louvre right now, and what should be done with the Mona Lisa and, and all sorts of exciting things like that. It was, it, it infiltrates our lives on lots of different levels, really. Is there, is there a question about what should be done with the Mona Lisa? There is. is. What is the question? debate that maybe it should be moved, like, out of the museum proper and into its own, like, isolation booth, essentially. Uh-huh. <laughs> that you could charge a separate ticket for and, and sort of divert everyone there so that the rest of the museum can actually be enjoyed better by people who want to see things that aren't the Mona Lisa. It sort of oh. overwhelms the space that it's in. Yeah. Yeah, I think the article said something along the lines of like 80% of people who were in the Louvre were there for the Mona Lisa. Wow. So it was like, we had these huge crowds and it's kind of getting in the way of, of the vast amounts of other art that the Louvre has yeah. on display. Yeah. 
I was once at the uh, Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam uh, at the time that they had this amazing sort of parallel exhibition called uh, Art is Art as Therapy. And one of the they, they had these like giant post-it notes all over the walls, one or two in every room. Um, and it would list a, a sickness like I don't understand mm. this piece of art or I feel like confused in this space or uh, I don't see the the importance of this. And then it would have this really very kind and understanding paragraph about what it is like to be human and how everybody feels like that and how that's okay and it doesn't damage your experience of art. And in the room that had uh, the Night Watch, uh, that big, big painting, I think mm -hmm. by Rembrandt, mm -hmm, is it? Mm -hmm. um, it? Which is the most popular painting in the museum. Uh, on the wall opposite it was one of these post-it notes. And the sickness that it listed was, I don't like how crowded this room is. <laughs> because it was, and I didn't. And the paragraph was like talking about how we feel isolated in crowds, but the painting is about a crowd. It's about this group of people who are joining together on this dreary, wet night to go do something that's kind of fun together as friends. And I was, it gave me a whole new ex experience of the painting and just sort of thinking about how, how we interact with art as individuals and how like, the crowds are getting in the way of of people having that experience is super fascinating and i am so so sorry for talking so long <laughs> no but i think i think that thinking about how people experience art or pop culture or anything um is probably a good place to start in terms of thinking yeah. about like what is pop culture compared to tradition or compared to just like necessity like we certainly have a lot of printed materials that are um more geared toward nonfiction and things like that are they still entertainment are they do they fit into pop culture so how do pop culture and tradition and that stuff kind of like where is there a divergence there yeah like what what makes tradition different from pop culture cast do you have any insight on this as someone with a master's degree in Shakespeare. I feel like, I mean, pop culture obviously is, is terminology that's developed fairly recently, the last few decades, really. Um, but if we're thinking about popular entertainment, it is designed to entertain. You know, the mm. primary function of a religious festival isn't necessarily to entertain, it's to serve whatever religious function it serves. And they can overlap, they can have similar roots, the roots of theater are in religious traditions. It mm. started off as, as related to the Dionysian revels, but eventually you start sort of separating those things out and you get to have entertainment for its own sake, something that may have a political purpose or a religious purpose, but it is designed to be consumed. It is designed to be yes. participated in perhaps, but in a different way than you participate in something religious or something civic, I think. That is a really good way to distinguish them. And I think that there still ends up being some overlap though too, right? Um, one thing I kind of thought of when I was thinking about this question between tradition and religion and entertainment was that at the late, in kind of the late Renaissance, you had this revival of liturgical music and you had people like Josquin Duprez and others um, who are writing like really good music that's actually bringing people back into church who are kind of like, 
not really wanting to be there, but they'll go for the music. And it's kind of this interesting, like, so this, yes, it was written for the purpose of a religious ceremony, but also it's entertaining in a way. So you can kind of have these sneaky cross-pollinating happen um, between traditional and religious, even necessary stuff, like especially like I think 18th century stuff I'm familiar with. And you read nonfiction that clearly it's it's not an entertaining purpose, but they feel the need to make it kind of spicy. And so you have like medical texts that are by seafaring surgeons who are peppering it with all kinds of like juicy details and like this thing happened to me and it becomes kind of like a memoir slash practical primer on Mm -hmm. treating wounds so it's kind of a funny place that things can intersect we like to be entertained even when what we're not really going for is entertainment yeah that makes me think of like illuminated manuscripts and how the monks would draw their little things in the corners and Mm -hmm. sometimes it was related to what was on the page the biblical tale and sometimes it was a knight fighting a giant snail for no right. really apparent reason. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or a cat licking its butt. Yeah. Or a yeah. dick tree. <laughs> the dick and, tree, yes. And they really did like their giant snails, too. Which is sort of love their of, giant snails. Which is yeah. just one of those sort of, like, mysteries of, like, what was that all about? Why, <laughs> why did they like giant snails so darn much? Well, which, they're easy to draw. Well, there is that. True. Yeah. <laughs> But one of the things that sort of fascinates me when you're looking into, like, building a pop culture for your world is the way certain things can mean so much to a culture and be completely inscrutable from outside that culture mm. and yeah. how you can house the best way to portray that in a way that isn't just equally inscrutable to the people who are, are reading your work. One of the most fascinating examples I saw of that, I don't know if any of you watched Babylon 5, but there was an episode where like the two comedy stars of the day show up on the station and do their bits. And it's Penn and Teller doing it, but what they do like makes no sense to us whatsoever. But like everyone else is laughing except for like one character who's like, why is this funny? I don't get it. <laughs> but the the creator explained the idea of being that in you know the pop culture comedy being so topical and being yeah. so part of like what is happening right now that the comedy of the 23rd century would be incomprehensible. Incomprehensible to us. That's so- fucking amazing. <laughs> Well, it's like in cross cultures, right? Like we always have the joke about, um, isn't it like Jerry Lewis is um, really funny in France and no one thinks he's funny in the US. But I had a French professor who talked about studying in France when Monty Python was popular the first time around and Holy Grail comes out and he like drags his friends to go see it. And like the theater is dead silent. Like no one's <laughs> laughing. No one thinks this is funny. And he's just like, what? What's wrong with you people? Oh my gosh, that's funny. Wow. I never thought about that, about how, like, humor would be so inscrutable to anyone who doesn't understand the context that it's coming from. But that is a really perfect example. Wow. Amazing. But also, if you go and watch, like, a stand-up set from the 70s, you will be like, what is going on here? Why are people laughing? I was actually thinking that about, there's an episode of Star Trek Next Generation where Data is trying to learn about comedy and trying to learn about humor, and they get the holodeck to try and teach him, but it's by way of, you know, like a 1988 stand-up comedian. Yeah. And so I'm watching this episode going, 
I know I'm supposed to think this guy is funny, but I so don't. And so the whole premise of the episode sort of fell apart a little bit. Yeah. I, I can tell you, having watched that in 1988, it wasn't funny then either. <laughs> genuinely makes me feel better that I didn't just like miss something but <laughs> Good. Uh, so let's talk about the difference between uh, like highbrow and lowbrow entertainment um, we, we talked a little bit about like what makes pop culture different from tradition so within pop culture then we have this kind of other classification system right right like we have our entertainment that we consider I mean I think at least in a, in a modern viewpoint you know we have I mean, we're all genre writers. We hear it, right? There's literature, and then there's yeah. like there's entertainment for fun. Other capital stuff. L literature, literature, literature. which none of, of us write because we're all genre writers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> literature. But it's kind of funny because I think Cass and I kind of started geeking about this in our dot points for the episode. That if you go back to say Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare's work was really considered like the highbrow printing of the day that that what you got in highbrow printing which we we can tell what people thought was important by how they printed it if it was in a folio edition or a quarto edition and for the most part what you get printed in shakespeare's era as important is religious texts and scientific texts like that's what's important in terms mm. of printing and yeah. like entertainment literature like plays or poetry is like meh. I mean, if they got printed at all, which the vast number of plays produced in, in Shakespeare's era, in the early modern era, didn't get printed because plays were ephemeral. They, they were something you experienced and then right. forgot about and watched the next one the next day. But yeah, Shakespeare's plays originally appear in, in Cordo. And just to sort of unpack what that term is, it's sort of the equivalent of a modern mass market paperback. Cordos mm. were smaller. They were your big sheet of paper got folded in half twice. So they're smaller. They wouldn't, they'd be sold unbound. They wouldn't have covers because who would waste something like that on a play? It was considered ridiculous. Sort of like a um, chapbook then. Not even, a not bit, even a yeah. mass market. Yeah. Yeah. And that was true for all, like, I mean, all quartos really were sold usually, you know, un, unbound and you could pay someone to bind it if you really wanted to. Folios were often already sold with some binding. You might even go get even fancier binding. We don't really start to see like the, the hardbacks, the cardboard until another century or so later. Mm. Um, but the folios were, like she said, the, the, the more important text of the day. You didn't print plays in folio, and yet the folio is why we have Shakespeare's plays, because seven years after he died, his friends decided his plays were good enough to put them, to collect them together and make a giant edition of them and put them out, which says a lot about Shakespeare's cultural power even then, yeah. years after he died. But what I do find funny is that his contemporary Ben Johnson was actually the first guy to put together a folio of his own plays because Ben Johnson was just that extra. Vanity press. He himself decided his plays needed to be printed in folio a couple years before um, Hemings and Condell, who were two of Shakespeare's um, fellow shareholders, decided that Shakespeare's plays after his death should be put together in that way. So, like, I just sort of enjoy that. But, like, we know about Shakespeare's folio. People don't know about Johnson. Ben Johnson. Oh, ben right. Johnson invented ben Vanity Johnson. Press. Wonderful. Kind of did. Kind of did. People should know more about Ben Johnson. That's fantastic. <laughs> but it's so funny to think about, you know, that we have this discussion today about like literature. And I think if anyone thinks literature, I mean Shakespeare is like top of any yeah. list of canon literature. And he wasn't considered during his lifetime important enough to get no, I mean, an important 
important printing. He got he got the, and, the junk printing, you know? And if you look at where his plays took, you know, where they happened, it was in, you couldn't put on plays inside the city of London. It was in the Southern District usually with the bear baitings and the whorehouses and the cockfights. <laughs> like, that was the level of entertainment a play was considered to be on. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Man, cool. Uh, was the equivalent of Saw. <laughs> really, really. I mean, it was Grindhouse Theater. It absolutely yeah. was. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But now today we have a similar conversation with like Martin Scorsese, who won't shut up about how terrible Marvel movies are and how they're not cinema. Yeah. Um, Which is so, yeah. oh, it was so funny to me when I read that, because if you look at the early history of cinema, cinema, most of it's, it's just, it's like the cinema of attraction, right? It's, it's spectacle. It's yeah. what can we do that's funny with film to make people go like, oh, that's cool. We have this so new technology, like you were saying, Alex, like we have this new technology. Let's see what we can do with it. Yeah. And kind of go ooh and ah. Like it wasn't even about narrative. It wasn't even about story. It wasn't about the human experience at all. Yeah. So much of it so much of it came out of vaudeville, which was itself considered a, a degradation of theater, which by that point had gotten to be more highbrow. And right. So if we if we want to look at like, you know, highbrow versus lowbrow, I really think the difference is how much people are paying for it at any given point in time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference between highbrow and An theater. A, right. Another great definition from Cass. <laughs> I had to think about these things a lot. Sure, sure. Since since Cass brought up Ben Johnson as one of Shakespeare's contemporaries and how a lot of times you will one of the things I love to see and I don't see this too much in in fantasy literature is the idea that there is an art community mm. and mm -hmm. who like who is part of that art community I mean the, the initial pitch of this episode is like not only who is your Shakespeare in your world but also who is your Webster and who is your Marlowe yeah who's your Marlowe <laughs> but yep. if you're going to do a world history most of the time when you do a fantasy world history you just do like the kings and wars and mm -hmm. empires rising and falling and you don't do like the say, artistic movements the artistic the art history of yeah. your world and I would love to see people do more of that I did a little of that with marinating do i have to do it you do have to do the voice okay <laughs> i did do a little of that in my book thank you marshall ryan raska okay. uh, um. you know who else is fantastic at this actually is uh kj parker um kj parker has like all of these different like art movements that and all of his books kind of take place in the same world uh, and roughly around the same time. So he can just sort of offhandedly mention this artistic movement. And it's really, really fascinating. And it does so, so much to deepen and enrich the experience of the world, even if he just has a name for it. Like he has this mannerist movement. And I do not know what he means by the mannerist art movement, but he mentions it all the time. And I'm like, that sounds like a real thing. That sounds like a thing that has like a whole other bunch of stuff behind it that I don't know know about. And he did it with one word. And sometimes that is really all it takes. Is just, yeah. You need to show that it means something to the people in the world. And that's that's all that really matters. Because certainly yeah. nobody expects even us masochistic doing way too much world building people expect you to actually create separate art movements. Oh, no. <laughs> No, but you can name them. <laughs> well, and I think it's interesting, too, when you, when you get into the actual, you know, like, how are you going to craft 
craft a story, like who does it matter to? And right. I like Marcia that you bring up the example of like, you know, does does your world have an art community like like the movable feast of Paris of the 20s? Do you have like a Paris and Berlin in the 1920s kind of group? Or is it something more similar to like an earlier era so people might not all be in the same place, but they have some kind of a correspondence? that the big, you know, artistic names of the time are writing to each other. And so you have that. Um, and I think it's interesting that for a lot of people, like, you know, your average street sweeper in Paris in 1920, or your average farmhand in 18th century England is like, they're probably not too plugged into it. So I think it's kind of fun to show those differences too. Yeah. Um, and in, in my book, um, like I have... <laughs> I have one character who's an artist and at one point in, in the third book that's not out yet, but this is not a spoiler. She's like bitching about, God, I hate this architecture movement. It's all part of the neo-pastoral thing that came out like a hundred years ago. And the main character is like nodding along like, uh-huh, I have no idea because <laughs> I don't care. Um, but you care because you're an artist. So I will smile and nod and we'll get back to something that I care about in the narrative shortly. Yeah. But no, you're you're both super super right because art doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like I, even us as writers, we sit alone in a room like banging on keyboards, and even that doesn't happen in a vacuum because we are interacting with each other as people, and we're interacting with each other's art. And like I'm doing something like reading Marshall Mar Ryan Maresca's book and getting super mad about it and saying like that's not how I would do it. I'm going to refute this whole thing. Um, and that's just like how it, it's a conversation. It's a living conversation. I think Alex, you may have brought this up that entertainment and pop culture has that element of celebrity to it. Mm. And I think that's a fun thing that you can play with, with entertainment, right? You know, you have, you have kind of your, um, your names that people all know who that is and whether or not that's something you build into your world that you have, uh, if they're, you know, opera singers because that's what's big in your world or their um, athletes because that's what's important to people in your world. Like that can reveal a lot about how people value different things or, or just what they find entertaining. Yeah. Or like useless society people who are like <laughs> Bo Brummel, for example, who wasn't doing fucking shit except being like performatively cruel to people in a way that made other people feel really insecure and then he like changed a bunch of men's fashion forever and it sucks for everybody um <laughs> but that too is pop is pop culture because you know like like the way that we are are expressing ourselves is also a form of art and we talked about that a whole lot on the last episode uh are there any other like but it's true that fashion is pop culture? Who is wearing what? Right. Is pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other like historical figures that you can think of who like really stood out as kind of trendsetters or or pop culture celebrities before we really knew what celebrity was? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you're going all the way back to ancient Rome, a lot of the poets of the era were of themselves notable people and so like if you look at Catullus who is my trash child I love Catullus's poetry he's, so much he's the one who wrote all that like erotic gay poetry right yes and I I don't I don't know what kind of like explicit warning you have on this podcast <laughs> oh we have <laughs> one yeah we <laughs> get that little e next to next to our podcast. <laughs> we do <laughs> yeah, go ahead like, we're good go his, for his it poems are great because like some of them are are very lovely tales about spring and travel and nice things like that and then some of them are classic lamentations over his girlfriend who 
that that's what gets really interesting because his girlfriend, we're pretty sure, was this woman called Clodia, who was involved tangentially in the politics of Mark Antony and Julius Caesar and all of that. So like yeah. Catullus was moving in semi the same circles as those super famous people. But then Catullus also writes some invectives against people he didn't like, where he like threatens to <laughs> the only proper translation of the word is to face fuck them. Wonderful. <laughs> and he talks about like, this guy stole my napkin when he came to dinner and I'm really angry about it. And, and if you don't shape up your ways, you're going to get face fucked you. And <laughs> He was like simultaneously such highbrow and lowbrow art at the same time. <laughs> you know, we're vast, we like, contain multitudes. Um, Ovid <laughs> had some similar issues. Ovid is known today as, you know, one of the great, great poets of ancient Rome, but he got his ass exiled from Rome. And no one's really sure why, except he picked <laughs> off the Emperor Augustus. So like, what happened there? It might have had something to do with him writing really sexy poetry. We're not sure. Amazing. Um, but you can also look at like other kinds of celebrity figures. Um, Chariot racers in, in ancient Roman and Byzantium were considered celebrities. Still, to date, if you adjust for, you know, inflation and everything, the most high-paid sports figure of all time was a chariot racer in ancient Rome. Really? Wow. Yeah. Tell me everything. <laughs> I, I don't know that much more, except that that's, that's the case. Like, they just, they could earn so, so, so much money. And they were known figures, and they had fan clubs. They had really aggressive fan clubs. The fan clubs for some of the teams in Byzantium started the famous Nika riots, which like almost tore the city apart and ended a dynasty. And and that's the kind of thing that like when pop culture gets out of control, which I think can be a really fun element to play with in fiction. Like what happens if you take the wheels off this wagon and let it roll downhill? Um, it can have such emotional power for people. Yeah. That happened, uh, a similar sort of thing happened in Japan in the mid-1600s with the advent of Kabuki theater uh, mm. because uh, ticket prices were so, so expensive. And the merchants, obviously, were the only ones who had money because the merchants are always the only ones who have money. Um, and so, like, the, the nobility class and the samurai were borrowing money from them so that they could buy tickets. And then when the merchants wanted their money paid back, uh, the samurai and the nobility were like, no, we have swords? So no. <laughs> and also at the in the kabuki houses, they were always attached to a, a tea house where you could buy merchandise of your fave. Like you could buy bath water that they had bathed in or like a tissue that they had blown their nose in. Or you could just buy your fave because they were also like brothels. I love that because it feels so modern, right? Like we feel it like does. that kind of thing started with like Beatlemania. But no, it, no. It, people it, have been making money off celebrity things. <laughs> yes. It's so wonderful how like there's these elements of humans have always been this way. <laughs> well, it's it's like the... um. Like pilgrims bringing back pieces of saints on pilgrimage, yes, yeah. like like it's it's kind of a weird celebrity thing in a way. I mean, it it's it's is. God adjacent, so you know there's that element, but it's also like <laughs> it's the finger bone of Saint Sebastian or whatever. Yeah. And it's like that's that's a body part. And like how we have enough. All I got was a lousy relic. Yeah, and, and how we have like enough shards of the true cross to build like a fucking <laughs> mansion. Uh, so you have like knockoffs as well, because, you know, that's a human instinct as well. Ah, capitalism. <laughs> you know what I also find interesting with like celebrity culture is that if you if you go back, um, that criminals are often celebrities. Everyone mm. knows who the major criminals yeah. of the time are. And one that I think of um, is 
Jenny Diver in the early 18th century. She was a really famous pickpocket. And she had all these like clever tricks. Like she would pickpocket in church by putting a big fake pregnant belly on and having like gloves stuffed sitting over it. And then she would like pick pockets through the like slits in her skirt. And when she finally got caught, like a whole bunch of people showed up to her execution because it was like, it's Jenny Diver. Like she's really famous for being a pickpocket. And and then there's the entertainment element of executions, which we can probably skim right over because we have plenty (laughs) else to talk about without being macabre. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Just as long as we are already on the macabre kind of topic, (laughs) let's just briefly mention the fact that surgeries used to be popular entertainment as well. People would show up to like watch them. Uh, back in the days, like just when they had first invented uh, anesthesia, and actually before they had invented before, the anesthesia yeah, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. And, uh, and going to asylums was also a form yes. of entertainment. Yeah, God, people are fucked horrible. up. Horrible. Horrible. Then that shows up in plays. There, there's there's a play. I think it's in the Revengers tragedy. I think it's in the Revengers tragedy where like there's a whole sequence that takes place in an asylum where people have come to watch. Like it's. Just, it's meta entertainment at that point happening yeah. in like 1610. Amazing. Anyway, let's move on from the the gross bad stuff. <laughs> so one but thing I think that's um, <laughs> one thing that I think that um, is kind of a, a key facet of pop culture is how does it get passed along? Mm. Like how is it transmitted? How does it get out into the rest of the world? Um, I was kind of thinking about this, that we've had a major shift in probably the past couple decades, the past 10, 20 years, that most of our pop culture went from being physical items that you like go to a store and purchase to being digital content Mm -hmm. that most people, you know, I was thinking like, does anyone except for my parents buy CDs anymore? Like anyone, anyone at all? I bought a (laughs) I bought a CD of Hamilton and a cd of a very good band called ludo and so yes i guess i do still buy a cd <laughs> occasionally but i don't buy digital copies of music because i just listen to everything on youtube anyway right yeah, right yeah. So, Spotify ownership is an that. interesting question at this point right like yeah. do we do we even own copies of the the things that we in- entertain ourselves with or is yeah. it just streaming or free access um which is a definite change from my youth anyway. Yeah. But also the, like, I want to see any single thing right now, boom, I can do it, which is a radical change from, you know, you taped it on the VCR and told everyone, you can't change it from channel three. Right. (laughs) Because I'm taping it right now, so you can't change the channel. It's also really interesting to me to think about how much more of a place music has in our current lives than it has ever had in history before. Because music is sort of like the quintessential, like ephemeral thing. Like used to be that you either learned how to play music yourself and then played it off of sheet music, or you had to go and listen to a performance of it. There was no way to record it. And so like, it was this thing that you experienced once and then maybe never again. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of classical music movement was so powerful because people didn't get to hear the ode to joy as many times as they wanted to. It was this one transcendent experience that you got and you remembered for the rest of your life. But on the other hand, for for a lot of human history, all, at least, you know, non-visual art was ephemeral like that. Yeah. The story that got told and retold and heard and remembered. 
the song that someone taught you that you might whistle lately that you, you would then get wrong and mess up some notes and then pass it to somebody else and, yep. and theater being an ephemeral experience. It, it, the idea of being able to pin these things down is relatively new to us. And so we're now in a weird cultural point of simultaneously sort of recovering that ephemerality when we're, we're removing the physical object from the experience. And yet also, I don't know, losing it at the same time, because like we said, with like digital copies and things, if, you know, if Amazon Kindle goes down, if Netflix goes down, if whatever, then you lose the access that you've had to, to the story that you thought you bought, perhaps. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird shift that, that's, I'm, I don't know, I'm not sure how I feel about it some days. I, mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously really mixed feelings, because it's a really complicated issue. Yeah, but it is interesting that I mean, we we did have this like, I mean, the moment in our history where owning a copy of the entertainment that you consumed has been pretty brief. In some ways, you know, we had a lot more time where that wasn't how we dealt with it. And it's interesting, Alexi mentioned sheet music, that that was an industry that like exploded, I think, late 19th century, Hmm. um, that you had all of these companies producing tons and tons of sheet music and having a piano in your home in the US and Western Europe, like became a norm. If you're middle class and up, you have a piano in your home. And And someone who knew how to play it. Someone who knew how to play it. And that was just, that was how you you had music in your home. And, and I find it really interesting before that, um, like 17th century into 18th century, um, the ballad tradition was really popular. And so you had these very long ballads and they were actually printed up on broadsides. And it was kind of a like very, very low um, income hawker position kind of that you would have these broadsides and you'd be selling them. Um, but what's interesting, you can find a lot of them if you go into the Bodleian Library and others, um, but they don't include the melody on most of them. So the hypothesis is these ballad sellers were singing it. You like listened to kind of like handle on the memory on the melody and then you buy the broadside and then you can go home and sing it and you you have this. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them kind of got lost, which is why um, they got carried over to America and the versions in Appalachia are often the closest analogs because some Scottish person, like, you know, 300 years ago had bought this broadside, had learned this song, had taught it to their kid, had taught it to their kid, had taught it to their kid. And so you have some semblance of what the melody might have been yeah. from some woman in Kentucky, <laughs> you know, in 1900. Yeah. Amazing. I was thinking about how in, you know, several of the Shakespeare plays, there are songs in the place but there's no music to them so like if you every production of as you like it you'll see you'll see a different version of each of those songs and they're all wrong because they're not the one from the version you did in college they're all right they're all right. Each one of them is right in its own way. In its own beautiful way, but also there's part of you going, yeah, but the one we did was so much great. Yeah. <laughs> That's Good. a big thing that, that when I'm teaching Shakespeare, I always want students to look at is like making their own choices about it and owning their version of the play, which I think is another interesting aspect on like who owns a story, whose story is it? And when you're putting on a Shakespeare play, I mean, it's yours. It's whatever choices you have made about it are the best choices. That was at least what I tell the students, as long as they're making textually supported choices in some way, if they can defend it, awesome. It's the best possible version. But not all art is like that. Yeah. Um, you get into copyright law and things like that. And it's like, who does own a story these days? Who, who, who has the definitive version of it? Who has the right version of it? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, it's interesting, like, you know, you mentioned Shakespeare. I mean, for, from what we know, there's no indication that Shakespeare was taking his plays down to the printer and having them printed. Like there's no, no. 
there's no indication that we have any authorial version of a Shakespeare play and where they come from is a really interesting rabbit hole of a question. But, oh you know, you'll have people analyzing like which of the Cordos is the bad Cordo. And it's like, well, they're all in some ways kind of a bad. Cordo. None of them was the one that Shakespeare is signing off on. Right. So it's yeah. like you have this weird disconnect between what he wrote and what got printed. And we'll never know exactly what happened there. No, yeah. when we look at things like th there are a lot of different theories behind the the bad quartos, the early quartos. Were they touring scripts? Were they early drafts? No one knows. There's a lot of different theories about it, um, but we will never know. But you also yeah. do see Shakespeare's hand in certain things. And, and it goes back to what we were saying about having an artist community. Um, my favorite example is in Much Ado About Nothing. There are scenes with Dogberry the Clown. But the speech prefix for Dogberry and for Virgis, the guy he's talking to, the speech prefix is the thing that says who's talking in a play. Don't read Dogberry and Virgis. They read Kemp and Cowley, which were the names of the actors playing those roles. Yeah. Um, Kemp, Kemp was absolutely the clown at that time in Shakespeare's Company. And that's in the printed edition. It, it's in the first quarto. It makes it through at least three quartos, I'm pretty sure. That error where it's written in not the character name, but the actor's name. And that shows so clearly that Shakespeare knew who he was writing for. He knew who his actor was, he knew who was going to be playing the role, to the point where, while dashing it off, he apparently forgot to write Dogberry and just wrote, this is Kemp's line, and no one caught that error. So anytime you're feeling bad about a typo in a finished printed version of one of your books, <laughs> just remember, for like 10 years, no one caught that error in a Shakespeare yeah. play. I mean, <laughs> who amongst us? Folio, but like... Who, whom amongst us hasn't been furiously writing a novel and gotten confused about which character is which? Like, we've all been there. Absolutely. Um, and you know especially right with, there with Shakespeare. Yep, exactly. Right uh, but I want to go back to like how it gets uh, transmitted a little bit. Um, and I would love to geek out for a minute about minstrels and <laughs> sort of their place in in how art was transmitted in the uh, pre-printing press era. Um, because like people weren't traveling that much in the Middle Ages. You know, obviously like there was trade. It did happen. But people compared to later on were very much sort of tied to where they were born and where they grew up. Uh, and minstrels were kind of the primary way of transmitting news because they would travel from one town to another. They would perform, they would sing, they would tell stories and they would hear the gossip and hear the news of what was going on uh, around the town. And then they would go to the next place and tell everybody what they had heard and what the news of the day was and then tell stories and get more gossip. And did I steal this for in my book? Yes, I did. <laughs> um, this is the whole thing that the uh, the chants are built around in A Conspiracy of Truths and A Choir of Lies. Um, that and kind of also the what we were talking about, about the ephemerality of art, because they have this big philosophical question that they are struggling with about whether it is right to uh, write something down and record it. Um, whether mm -hmm. stories like live being spoken, uh, because like there's one, one of the characters feels like if you write it down, then it's dead because it doesn't change and change is life kind of changes what gives the story life because like you're always adapting it to sort of what is with true within you rather than giving the word for word version that you heard and that's a good thing um i love that that feels like it could almost have like religious significance as far yeah. as the art is concerned that's that's a really lovely thing to contemplate. 
I think you would enjoy my books, Cass. Just trying some <laughs> other things that you have you have said on this episode. I keep biting my my tongue and going, mm, cool. <laughs> also, her audiobook narrator is a delight. Oh my gosh, my audiobook narrator for A Conspiracy of Truths was fucking fantastic. He did a gorgeous job. But let's continue. So we've kind of talked about the difference between like the the permanence and the ephemeral when it comes to entertainment. I feel like that kind of relates to also the experience in terms of are you having a solitary experience mm. or a social experience? Like if you think about all gathering around a traveling minstrel and listening, there is a social experience to that. Going to a theater, there's a social experience. Sitting by yourself in your room reading a book is a different experience. So like how does that play into how we think about entertainment and culture. I mean, it affects what we talked about, about transmission. You know, if a bunch of people experience a thing at the same time, it's different than one person experiencing it and then passing it to one other person. And, and so the, the, communi- the, the commonality, the communal, communal, that's not a word, communal experience of um, art changes depending on how social it is. And I feel like that depends a lot on how social or accepting of privacy the society as a whole is because for what's the answer like a lot of human history privacy has sort of been a myth or something relegated to the upper classes you know if you had the space to be alone in if you could enjoy art on your own you are of a different economic class than the people who have to get their art the same time everybody else gets it yeah or if you can afford that copy of a book as opposed to like having to i'm thinking about like um factory workers in in the 19th century who would like paste pages of a book on their looms and like read to each other and pass the pages around whether your art is private or social I think can depend a lot on on your social class yeah absolutely I mean and like that aspect because like a book is sort of intended to be a solitary thing but the act of reading it aloud to a group of people sort of changes the intent of what it's for and makes it a different thing and I think that that is a super super interesting thing too because then like you the person who is holding the book and reading it aloud become the performer as well you come become mm-hmm. this middleman between the artist and the audience because you yourself are another artist in the step and you're giving it your own interpretation and this happens with with plays as well when it's not the or i mean i guess even like when you do have the the playwright sitting right off stage um and like giving you directions as you come off stage you're still like interpreting the work um and uh, through a, a filter of your own experiences so like yeah. anyone who's read a book to a child and been told do the voices you have to do the do voices. the voices like, yeah or like they, they just like listen the voices right right or god, god, god forbid you try to skip a page and then it's like you're doing it wrong it's wrong <laughs> um yeah or just like when they like gasp and and react and and give something back to you uh as you're doing this performance because it's a two-way thing as well like you get the energy from them listening attentively just as like you are giving them something by performing it. I mean, any actor can tell you, you know the difference between a house that is with you and that is following you and invested in you versus yeah. a house that is not paying attention to you. Oh. You know when oh, the house is hot. Like you Lord, feel yes. that from them. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and we have, we have all read our own work in public, I think, right? And like, we have all had this experience. Like, you know when the audience is paying attention to you. Um, you also know like when you have a large audience, which has its own sort of, terrors as opposed to like when you're at a convention it's like oh good two people showed up to this reading awesome yeah. great yeah. this is going to be a different experience 
I have to do another in my book thing. And I'm just <laughs> So when uh, I have to do another in my book thing, uh, when A Conspiracy of Truths came out, because it is a book that is about someone telling a story verbally, I was like, I don't want to read it off the page. I don't want the, the book to be an obstacle between me and the audience. So I memorized the first 15 minutes of the book and just recited it from memory. <laughs> Hardcore. And, thank you. Well, uh, hardcore. Well I, also, I also abridged a bunch of it because there are things that work well on the page that don't work well as a performance. Um, and also I wanted to stop at a, a dramatic point. But yeah, I did that thing and it was great because I started off with the book in my hands and then like two sentences into it, I clapped it closed and handed, off, handed it off to a friend. And you could see <laughs> the audience tense up and be like, what the fuck are What's you doing? And I... I had them for the rest of the 15 minutes. None of them fucking breathed. It was great. Oh my God. Yeah. I was high off of it practically. It was, <laughs> you could feel it. Yeah. Let's move on though. One um, thing I think, um, a good question. I think that Cass brought up in the kind of how do people encounter culture? Where does culture come from? Is the question of patronage mm, and yeah. like, who is paying for this to happen and how that relates to like what actually, out there and the concept of censorship. Yeah, and it's really fascinating to me that we have now brought this idea of patronage back with, you know, Patreon. Yes. Um, like where you have that personal, yay, Patreon, um, where you have that personal relationship with an artist and you are giving them money directly to support them. Just, to, I mean, it's not on the scale that, for example, a Renaissance artist might have gotten patronage from. Uh, the de Medici's, you know, they're not paying for your whole if life. Only. Your... <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if any Medici's out there would like to subscribe to my Patreon, however. <laughs> I was about to say exactly this. <laughs> I accept. <laughs> I will take your money. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but but we for, for a couple centuries there, we kind of got away from, from this idea of directly paying the artists that you admire and that you want to support. And now we have sort of drifted back to it because capitalism is terrible. It's the truth. Yeah. And, and, and patronage works in different ways. I'm actually working on a brand new project for, for Nano right now. And so we'll see if anything actually ever comes of it. I'm just playing around because I turned in a draft of my actual book and I get to play for a while mm, while I wait for Nano. Yeah, that's but, the rules. It's a, it's a second world fantasy. It's inspired a lot by the early modern theatrical culture that I have been so steeped in and know a lot about. And like one of the questions I'm sort of coming down to is that idea of patronage. Because like if you have a patron, yes, they're giving you boatloads of cash and that's great. But they also have some like control over what you do, or at least they can. You know, it can work that way. They can tell you what yeah. projects to do. They can tell you. Or censorship can come from the state. You can have the master of rebels saying, nope, this play is too seditious. Can't put that on. Cass, um, Cass, so the money comes from? Uh, you and I need to be best friends because I'm literally working on exactly <laughs> the same project right now. No! Let's trade notes. It's probably going to be a little bit different. L let's talk about I'm after the show because, oh yeah, my God, um, I'm into everything that you're saying right now. I love it. <laughs> but, uh, it's like I'm, just I'm kicking around these ideas and it's just like playing around also with the idea of shareholding, which is how a lot of early modern companies worked. And, yep. and Money plays in it so many. I feel like I've mentioned money so much in this. It, no, we mentioned money on every single. It always comes back to money. It's always about should, economics. Like, like the death episode was all taxes. Like it was. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it really was. <laughs> it does. Like it affects both 
how you access it, who can access it, who has the power to create it. I mean, we go through that as writers. You know, who has the money to give us advances? Who has the money to then mm-hmm. buy our books? It's it's all inter interrelated. Well, I think then the the kind of play between who has the money, who's paying for things, then that can kind of birth off these offshoots of counterculture too, right? Like you can have connections to mainstream culture and pop back around to, you know, maybe there's less money in this, but a lot of us really want to see something that's not what the main patrons or the state or the major companies want to see put out. So you kind of have that playing, I think, in a lot of different different spots. Um, I know we say counterculture, you tend to think like 60s, but I mean, you have... You have other spots of that happening, like we talked about vaudeville, which kind of pops mm-hmm. out of, you know, there's highbrow theater and then like, let's do something different. And so you have these things that kind of do something different. Yeah. And, and that can play into different social dynamics as well, because I think where you find that counterculture art is often coming out of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm which may then spread into the more commonly consumed art, but it, it begins in a different place because you're working with these different socioeconomic pressures. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Do we want to uh, talk anything about like how we do this in world building or anything like that? Or we could just let Cass talk for five minutes about uh, her piece of guest star world building. Oh, it's that too. What do you, what do you guys want to do? Well, I mean, we, we probably should, for the sake of our listeners, at least try to touch on how they can do yeah. it better. Because they're or, probably this whole time going, but 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 how do I do it? How do I? How, how do, do I do it? it? Well, dear <laughs> listeners, you just sort of do it. You just, um, <laughs> I mean, knowing what your technological limitations are, is going to be a big part of it. Yeah. Knowing, mm-hmm. do you have the ability to record yes. video or audio stuff? Do you have the ability to print? I mean, the printing press is a very specific, you know, sort of thing. Or do you have a magical implement that takes that over? I think you guys mentioned this in an earlier episode about, like, can you magically copy this book? Right. What do you have right. available to you? And when or, I say technology, I consider magic a kind of technology. But, like, it, what is yes. the level that your society's at? And that's going to shape the art. In yeah. And I think, that, I think other cultural elements, too, you really have to think about, you know, for example, I was when I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking about Alex's nomadic people in the world that we're building um that having like physical stuff may or may not be a priority for your Mm -hmm. people and if you are for instance nomadic you might not have you know the priority of carrying around a bunch of books with you or that might be the one thing that you're like no we really value having these books that we carry with us everywhere Um, you can depend on this but you could also have the issue of like geographic insecurity. Like if you live in an area that shit burns down every few years, having physical stuff might not be as important to you. Or if you have cultural values that just you don't own a lot of things or you have to own a lot of things like that changes how you engage with culture and how you consume culture. Rowena, stop talking. I just had a brilliant idea about my <laughs> nomadic people based on something that you said. So here's my piece of world building for my uh, my nomadic desert people for this episode, which is that Rowena is completely right. They wouldn't really be interested in having stuff that isn't functional because they have to carry it all around. So I'm going to say that, the, so in the last episode, the fiber episode, the fabrics uh episode, we uh, determined that I think mine make their tents out of felt. 
And so I am going to say that they inscribe their stories on the sides of their tent using either a paint or embroidery. They like put it directly on the tent itself because then you can have it and you can carry it around with you, but it's also a functional object. I like, I like. You like that? Yeah. Like. Cool. So that's, uh, that's my, my contribution. It's yours. Yeah. Uh, do either of you have uh, things that you want to contribute to your your uh, countries, or should we just hand it over to Cass? Well, so I was I was thinking about the kind of highbrow lowbrow play, and I think that I had mentioned that that so my concert of states have um, like music as a part of their culture. I mentioned every major city has an opera <laughs> house, but they also have their like pulp printing, which is like you get you get ballad broadsides and you also get like reprints of the arias from the operas or you get plot summaries you get these condensed versions that people will sell on the street so if you can't afford to go to the opera you can buy like the cheap broadside to kind of keep up with what's happening um on the stage fabulous love it marshall ryan maraska i was thinking actually just Bouncing off something Cass had said earlier of like what your technology is and what, you know, and magic as a form of technology. I, I'm not entirely sure what this would mean, but I definitely think like the idea of magic as itself an art form or a pop culture thing. I did, I did a thing in my book, the one that just came out, where I basically have a burlesque number that is magically enhanced. Incredible. <laughs> Wonderful. Great work. Okay. okay. Love it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm i'm thinking that that's sort of what they do they use magic in a like in like a visual and light show way to, to as part as a key aspect of their of their culture magic laser show i love it magic laser show yes <laughs> all right so i think that we can kick it to cast to give us something to give us a gem Goods. which is awesome. our as is our tradition so I'm gonna I'm gonna back up my thing, and I think it's probably gonna end up being Marshall's. I wasn't sure who I would bestow this upon, but I'm okay. gonna back it up with with a little bit of um, just the history of where, of where these things come from. It can also be by way of helping people think about what kind of theater, what kind of art might you have in your society. Architecture impacts so much; it literally shapes the theater that you have. You see mm-hmm. the difference between Greek plays and huge amphitheaters, which started out really only having one character and then a chorus, and they relied a lot on masks and on very large, you know, gestures and things. There's not a lot of action in those because it it becomes hard to see from a distance. So the shape of that theater affects the shape of the plays you get. Shakespeare's plays change drastically when they're written for his outdoor theaters like the Globe as opposed to his indoor theater like the Blackfriars. That's actually where we start seeing Shakespeare use a five-act structure is not until his later plays written for an indoor theater, because about every 20 to 30 minutes, you would have to stop and trim the wicks so that the candles didn't drip on the actors and the audience. So he took an act break and played some music, and that's why we start seeing plays in five acts at that point in time. There have been some in the Greek era, too, but in, in early modern English theater, that's really where that starts coming in is in the indoor theaters. So this idea that your space creates the shape of the theater that you have. And that also got me thinking about the tradition of the medieval mystery pageants, which were the precursor to English theater a lot. Um, And they were often performed by use of elaborate carts and platforms. And they would be created by the different guilds for the special occasion. And I had the great fortune to get to see the York Mystery Cycle performed in 2006. They do it every four years now in York, and it's astonishing. 
And the carts that did the, the creation of the world had all these moving parts and like they cranked the thing and the fishes would jump and the sun came up and down. It was beautiful. So what I would like to bestow upon one of you, and I think it might work well with Marshalls, but I leave it to you all to figure out, you know, whose society it fits well into. I would like to bestow upon you the idea of a theatrical festival shaped by these carts and platforms. And it's the kind of festival that would be put together and could perhaps travel to different areas in, in your world or perhaps be assembled. You know, it's a, it's a one-day thing. We're going to roll our carts into the town square and then roll them away. Um, but they are centered on this movable object. They, they are is theater centered on a, a wagon, essentially. That is and wonderful. I love it. I love it so much. People, not just one company, but lots of different, you know, people with different yeah. carts telling their different stories. Yeah. So I just throw that upon one of you, and and perhaps they are magical carts, and that's how they they get their yeah magical light show happening on these carts or something. That is fabulous. That is wonderful. I will note we haven't finished building out the world yet, so it doesn't yeah. even necessarily have to be one of sure. the yeah. three that we have. Like it could be its own yeah. thing, and we could like honestly, we could build a whole society around we like could start with that. Things. <laughs> yeah, start with the parts and build out from there. Build out um, from there. Yeah. Cool. That's wonderful. Thank you so much again, Cass, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Absolute so joy fun. to have you. Wonderful. I love it. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, dear listeners, if you have any uh, inform or if you have any questions for Cass, can I mention your uh, Twitter handle? Do you want to tell people where to find you? Yes, absolutely. On Twitter, I am at Cass R. Morris. I live on Twitter most of the time. Um, my website is CassMorrisWrites.com. My Patreon is patreon.com <laughs> slash Cassar Morris. Um, I, I do a lot of my world building stuff there. I import a lot of things from the Oven Cycle onto that. So if you like that sort of thing, you might enjoy it. Excellent. And I'm also on Instagram at Cassar Morris. So I'm Cassar Morris on most of the internet. I'm pretty easy to find. Wonderful. And I love talking. So please, please come to me and throw things at me. I, I'm a very chatty human being so, i am immediately going to do that thing i also I, i'm also i love going to conventions and talking to people so if you see me out in the real world i also just i like talking cool well thank you for <laughs> talking at us tonight it has been absolutely fa fabulous thank, thank you thank you, you so thank much Cass. so much fun thank you for having me Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists, and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 11th, and guess what? It's another episode with one of our glamorous guest stars. This time it's going to be Tasha Suri, author of Empire of Sand, and since it's the holiday season, we're going to be talking about that thing you can't talk about at the dinner table at your family reunions. No, not sex. The other thing. Not politics either, yikes. No, we're talking about religion. Though, let's honest, if we're talking about religion, it's also going to involve politics and sex. Probably. <laughs> anyway, we really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. 
We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. We didn't get to talk about literacy rates in this episode. Uh, in the medieval era, Iceland had a 95% literacy rate. 95%! Because their winters are so long and so dark that there literally isn't anything to do but read. They developed a book-oriented culture before basically anywhere else in Europe. <laughs>